Welcome to another episode of The Impolite Psychologist. So there's a really cute children's book called Music is Everywhere. And the company that makes it is called Baby Mozart, if you've ever heard of them. And basically the whole book is about how music is everywhere in nature. One of the pages says, music is everywhere. I hear music in the trees, the swaying and the swishing of the leaves up in the trees. It's music to my ears as they rustle in the breeze. And then it goes on to describe other places where there are music. Music is everywhere. I hear music in an elephant. I stand up tall and listen when I hear that trumpet sound. The elephant has called us all from miles and miles around. So you get the gist of it. So basically it's saying that you can find music no matter where you are. It's all around you all the time. And I feel like that's the whole thing with psychology is that there is a whole bunch of psychology that's always sort of going on in the world that people don't really notice, but it sort of makes it its way into many walks of life. And I'm always blah, blah, blahing about how everybody should go to therapy or work on their problems in therapy. And I absolutely believe that's true. But I also think that there are other places in life where you can see psychology and you can actually get some sort of therapeutic benefits from other places and other people besides just your therapist. Now, I was talking to a guy recently who's really into golf. And uh, I was just sort of talking about the psychology of golf and sort of what goes through your head when you're playing and, and sort of how you can get in your head and, and that sort of thing. And it can wreck your game. And he said to me, yeah, sports psychology is just now starting to make its way in and is now becoming acceptable. And this sort of floored me because I thought golf and a lot of other sports, especially sports where it's an individual type of sport, where you might be on a team, but basically your individual performance is what matters for the team. And individual sports could be anything. It might be golf, it might be snowboarding or skiing, it might be dancing, it might be figure skating, but for the most part, a person's individual performance is important. And, and when a person is in an individual sport like that, they are constantly competing against themselves uh, for a better version of themselves. And what they do physically is half the battle because if their head is either somewhere else where they're thinking about something else that's going on in their life, or they have serious performance anxiety, or when certain types of people are watching, their performance changes. And these are all examples of how psychology is always present in sports.
even when you think about teams and how teams like baseball teams or football teams or basketball teams, the team members will stop shaving or stop washing their clothes or do something when they're on a winning streak in which they keep everything in their life exactly the same because that's what created the winning. And you'll have entire teams of people doing this together. And so there's something sort of interesting about the psychology of that. It's more like superstition, maybe. But so much of this stuff is about psychology. And when a person has poor performance in their sport, a lot of times it's related to what's going on with them psychologically. It's not that they don't have the physical ability to be successful. It's that whatever is going on with them internally affects their performance. And so if this is true in sports, this is true in a lot of different areas. And often a good coach is not going to be necessarily helping someone to fix their physical performance, but is helping to understand what is going on with them emotionally in order to work through it. And there are a lot of coaches who can see that, who can see performance anxiety problems and nervousness and what's getting in the way. And they can usually they have some way of putting things in perspective for the player, asking them to think of it this way or that way instead in order to help them to get through whatever it is they need to get through performance-wise. So a perfect example of this is a movie called Miracle in which Kurt Russell plays Herb Brooks the coach of the U.S. hockey team up against the Soviet Union in 1980. True story. And this is the speech that he gives the team before they go out on the ice. The U.S. is the underdog in this situation. Great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. One game. If we played them 10 times, they might win nine. But not this game. Not tonight. Tonight, we skate with them. Tonight, we stay with them. And we shut them down because we can. Tonight, we are the greatest hockey team in the world. You were born to be hockey players. Every one of you. And you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. 
their time is done. It's over. I'm sick and tired of hearing about what a great hockey team the Soviets have. Screw them. This is your time. Now go out there and take it. So how powerful and wonderful would a coach like that be? You could see that a lot of healing could happen with somebody like that in your corner. And so this is something that I talk about with clients when I'm doing trauma work. One of the things that we try to do is to come up with a team. And the team is three people, at least three people, and they don't have to be alive and they don't have to be real. They just have to be people who you know well enough to know what they would say and what they would do. Now, if people, if clients can come up with three members of the team that they know personally, then they've got a lot of support in your life. And if you have at least three members of a team like this in your life, then you're in good hands. So the three people on a team should be a nurturer, someone who is there in your life, who listens and can help you to feel better when you're having a bad day, who might be someone who bakes you cookies or is a shoulder to cry on or gives you hugs or generally just listens and cares. A protector is somebody who has your back no matter what. Maybe that means that they would defend you if you needed to be defended in an argument or physically. Maybe they're that person that you rely upon who, if you called them stranded in the middle of the night, they would come and pick you up. They're your go-to person who makes sure that you are okay in the world. And the last person on the team is the advisor. And an advisor is just somebody that you would go to and trust if you had to make major life decisions and you trust that the advice they give you will be wise and will be in your best interest. Now, most people can come up with an advisor. The idea of coming up with somebody who's a protector or a nurturer, that's a little bit harder for a lot of people. And so I think it's worth it to be looking at people like coaches, people like instructors, to help you with, help you in terms of being on your team and helping you with support and healing. Now, when I was young and first working um, after my internships were over and I was just having a job for the first time, as uh, I wasn't licensed yet, as an unlicensed psychologist, I worked in a rehab for kids. 
and uh, a drug rehab for teenagers. And there were some kids who absolutely no problem would come in and go to my groups or go to my family therapy or go to individual therapy with me. And they were all good and they were ready to work and that was that. And then I had other kids who did not want to have anything to do with me. They didn't trust me. They didn't trust people in the world of psychology. They didn't understand how it worked out. Um, I had different ways that people would deal with this. Um, some people would just avoid me. Some kids would some kids would avoid me. Some kids would come in and report very superficial things and try to get through. Some kids would literally sit there in silence for an hour and it was just sort of a battle of wills, which was kind of ridiculous. Um, and I actually had one kid destroy my office when I wasn't there one night. So yeah, I wasn't reaching everybody. But one thing I was well aware of was that other staff were able to reach these kids if I wasn't. So maybe they didn't want to go to therapy and do the thing where they talk about trauma or past painful events, but they were different when they were in the kitchen with the cook or out with the maintenance guy that if they were given a job or a task to do with one of those people, they would actually open up. And even if they weren't opening up and telling their stories to these people, I knew that the act of them just sort of being with somebody who didn't want anything from them, who didn't expect anything from them, who was just spending time with them was part of the healing. Someone who just listened without having an opinion necessarily. Someone who taught them a new skill. Someone who believed in them, thought that they were worth it, believed in their future. That was enough for them to get the healing that they needed at the time. Now, along the lines of psychology and healing is everywhere, I have found an interest in the psychology of finance. Now, if you read these books that have to do with finding financial freedom and getting rich and, you know, living that life of investment and freedom. If you read these books, you will find that they are full of psychological concepts. For example, if you read books on how to do business deals, one in particular always comes to mind, and that is Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's all about, it's a very old book, by the way, long before my time, but 
It's a book about how to talk to people and how to understand what they want and need in life in order to create a message that will be meaningful to them in order to make a business deal happen. And it's all about reading people and understanding people and then how you behave to get the message to them in a way that they will hear, in a way that they will make a business deal with you. And I think it's so interesting because this is not the kind of thing that I learned in graduate school. We had nothing to do with finance or business or any of that stuff. And, you know, what's sort of ironic is a lot of us ended up in private practice, but not one person ever spoke to us about how to manage a small business as a person in private practice. Not one conversation during graduate school. The other thing I find funny about these business books is that there's a lot of talk in them about a person's relationship with money and the belief systems around money. So for people like me who are overeducated, and I, I'm not being facetious at all, we grew up thinking that we were supposed to get an education and go work for somebody, and that was the answer to everything. And in the business world, that's not the case. It's really about not working for somebody else, trying to figure out how to gain personal freedom by creating assets in your life. And there's what's interesting about this is that these books are really about breaking through belief systems and understanding where you are and understanding how you feel about money or how you feel about debt or what you were taught growing up about these things. And for me, it's like a new chance to learn a new type of psychology that was never presented to me. And what's fascinating about this is that people in the business world have been doing this thing for years and people in the psychology world have been doing their thing for years. And it's not very often that people in either of these worlds treads into the other people's territory. And yet all we're both doing is talking about psychology all day long, every day. And even in the world of business, there is some of that sort of superstitious stuff, if you will, belief systems about money in the way that baseball players may not shave when they're on a winning streak. A lot of people who are in investment and, and business have beliefs about what they're supposed to be doing with their money in order to get something back. So they believe in giving to charity because the more that they give to charity, besides the tax write-off stuff, the more that the money will come back to them often. Same thing with anybody who does 
tithing at church, right? That there's this belief that if they give, they will get back even more. And so that's an interesting type of psychology around money. Now, the question becomes, how does healing show up in this world of business? What does a healer look like in the world of business? And to be honest, this is such foreign territory for me, I don't quite frankly know, but my guess is this. It's the person that can get you to a place where you change your belief systems about money in a way that heals you into self-care, that gets you to a place where you take care of your finances in a way that is really healthy, where you're not in debt or overspending or pushing yourself to your limits, where you're creating comfortable nest eggs for you and your family, and you feel confident about your life being stable because of your relationship with money. And it's not because you're relying on somebody else. It's because you've actually changed your mindset in a way that you have created a future for yourself that is reliable. So the way I started this episode was with the idea that music is everywhere. And I talked about the children's book that says that and also that psychology is everywhere. Now, just getting back to the music thing. So when I was working on my dissertation, one of my dissertation committee members was a guy who was well-connected in the Native American community. And he asked me a question one day. He said, do you know who the modern shamans are of our time? And I said, no. And he said it was musicians because musicians represent the people and speak for the people. I always found that interesting because he's right. Musicians will create music to set a tone and they will create lyrics to send a message. And most of the time, it's stuff that most of us can relate to. And so, yes, music is everywhere, but psychology is in music as well. Now, just to sort of take that a step further, if you have ever listened to a song and had it take you back to a much earlier time in your life, to where you feel almost that age, that has to do with the psychology of the brain and your memory network. In fact, memories are held by all the senses. And sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes you will hear a song and you will remember, oh, I was in high school and I was dating so-and-so and this reminds me of that dance where we met and you have an entire memory intact that's related to that one song. And it consists of sights and sounds and 
maybe even smell and all of that, right? That all of the senses are intact when you think of that particular memory. And you might have not even thought of that memory until you heard the song. And that's kind of how psychology is. It really is everywhere. And sometimes we don't have an entire memory intact. Sometimes we just smell a smell and it reminds us of something our grandmother used to make or, or you smell a smell and it feels awful when you smell that smell and you don't exactly know why. And so that's related to memory. So memories, good, bad, and neutral, are kept not only in the mind as pictures, but they're also kept in terms of the other senses as well. And so you can remember your grandmother's cooking when you smell something very similar. Or you can smell a smell or smell an odor that just smells awful, not because of the scent, but because of something terrible that it reminds you of. And so this is true with all of your senses. It might be sight, it might be sound, it might be taste, it might be smell, it might be the feeling of something that you're touching. Sometimes you know exactly what it's about and sometimes you're not exactly sure, but you know you're having some kind of emotional reaction to it, like a sense of disgust, even though it's a flower and shouldn't objectively be offensive. But for some reason, that particular flower reminds you of something not so great in your life. And so psychology really is everywhere all the time. And I would encourage you to be looking all around you for it. And understanding that you are affected by a lot of things around you. Psychology is around you. But the good news is, as I've talked about earlier, that the healing can be all around you too. That there are opportunities to heal in other ways and with other people besides therapists. And so once again, I wish you well and thank you for listening.